are listening to Shaping a Better Maritime World podcast by Bureau Veritas. Each month, we discuss marine and offshore market trends with key stakeholders to help you navigate the energy transition and shape a better maritime world for the future generation. We're back again at Floating Wind Solutions 2022 with, again, Dan Holmes from Bureau of Veritas. Dan, welcome back. Thank you, Jim. Nice to be here again for another fantastic day. Dan, you did such a good job moderating that discussion <laughs> yesterday. Literally, I was blown away. So I'm so happy to have you back to be able to do it again today. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, yesterday we did a very sort of high-level look at what was happening in the offshore floating wind Today, we're going to drill a little bit into the marine aspects a little bit more. We've got two great guests with us today. We've got Alberto Morandi, General Manager for Gusto MSC. And we've also got Chris Binkcliffe, Director of Marine Service for Matthews Daniels. So he's going to have a great conversation. We'll talk about some of the vessels and also insurance and marine warranty as well. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Dan, we'll take it away. Thank you very much, Jim. So... If we, you know, just looking at offshore wind, and there's a very a lot of similarities with offshore oil and gas. So, you know, perhaps Chris and you can start us off. Like, what's the transition? Do you think what does it look like going from oil and gas to offshore wind in general? Absolutely. I think that you know when we look at the history of oil and gas, we saw initially shelf projects and then progressing from shelf projects from fixed founded structures moved slightly deeper into the floating structures and we saw the progression from you know jackets to semi-submersibles tlps and spars i think in the same light we're seeing that expansion for floating wind going from the fixed offshore wind from the monopiles and the jackets solutions that we've got today and again moving into similar technologies in terms of semi-submersibles tlps so tension leg platforms and spars and i think we're going to see a similar kind of expansion as we move deeper and deeper looking at kind of similar capabilities, but with a twist to accommodate the changing profiles and the changing needs that we're going to have for offshore wind. I mean, going from oil and gas to offshore wind, is there additional risks? It sounds like there's a lot of similarity, but are there any additional risks involved? I think there's definitely different characteristics that are going to be at play. Obviously, when you're talking about wind, you're talking about a field of multiple assets in close proximity to each other. Typically, when you're talking about oil and gas, you're talking about one big asset on its own. So certainly in terms of the kind of potential issues for things being in close proximity, you know, if you lose a mooring line on a floating wind structure, for example, is there a risk that that's going to potentially come loose and hit another turbine? Are you going to have consequential effects? There's definitely that aspect of it that's going to be challenging and different. Fantastic. I think building on what Chris was saying, one of the lessons we learned on Katrina, Rita and all was the semi-serves, the broke moorings. And then they drift it, the semi-sub doesn't sink, but it brings that, those anchors yep. dragging stuff on the seafloor. I think there were hundreds of pipeline impacts, and that's something that's going to be hit. You know, yeah, no, that I, kind of risk. That know. kind of risk, and certainly that's going to be very pertinent for offshore wind when you've got subsea power cables that are going to be slewing across the floor. You know, if you have a potential for a dragging incident, then potentially you could be impacting many turbines, even if you don't impact many at the surface. Mm. Perhaps you're going to have consequential effects on the ground that are going to be much more catastrophic. Yeah. And what about the marine vessel aspect, Alberto? Is there any changes there? Well, I think that, you know, the main difference is when you look at oil and gas, you're looking at the resources that are highly concentrated around a well site, right? And those assets are designed for that well site for the characteristics of that reservoir, right? And when you go to offshore wind, what you have is a, a number of assets spread over a geographical area, you know, 50, 100 turbines. And so here, the key is industrializing, 
of course, things have to be very similarly produced, mass produced, and, and installing them very quickly. So, you know, if you think of shallow water, fixed wind, that generally installed with a jack-up, but that jack-up is designed to install 150 per year. So move, that's 150 rig moves per year, and Chris knows what it takes to move <laughs> a jack-up rig. Absolutely. It's a little uh, slow. Yeah, in the drilling world, we may design it for, let's say, five moves per year, if such. You know, sometimes the rig stays there for sometimes more than a year. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so on a drilling rig, you generally see that triangular shape because it's not worth paying the extra fourth leg. And you have, you know, the installation. The jack-up is stable because it penetrates into the soil, right? And that's in drilling rigs usually done by preloading. So you're using ballast to drive the leg. On the wind side, because you want to be installing a turbine ideally every day or every two days, you don't want to be spending six, seven hours preloading. So what you do is you pay the extra leg. So you tend to see those four-legged units. And then what you do is that you concentrate the entire weight on two diagonally opposite legs. So you don't take any ballast. You don't waste time taking ballast. The other big difference is also, you know, drilling rig is usually towed, but you don't want to be towing at three, four knots. So those that the drilling, the, the offshore wind turbine installation vessels usually are DP and self-propelled, and they can transit at 11 knots. Or and they also have fast jacking systems. You know, different jacking systems than fundamentally different because if you're going to go up and down 150 times a year. You know, your fatigue life has to be different, the materials, the design is different, and it has to be faster, too. So it's that speed of insta repeated installation is different. The kind of work you do on to understand the ground, you know, a jack-up is as good as the foundation. Again, Chris knows that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But going from the East Coast to the West Coast, you know, we often see this transition from fixed floating wind to floating offshore wind. You know, obviously, I'm thinking that the jack-ups would then no longer be suitable on the West Coast. Yeah, I think what you might see something different because what the challenge of the West Coast is space, right? Mm -hmm. You know, real estate in California doesn't come easy. So, you know, in the East Coast, it's already a challenge in the East Coast to find ports, right? Who can stage this. In the West Coast, it would be harder. So, you could be see solutions where a jackup is brought as a movable port, you know, to a jackup with a crane. You know, even wind installation jackups from an older generation that can no longer lift offshore the big new turbines they could be used as a harbor you know with some kind of solution to assemble this on you know because floating wind is generally likely to be assembled in port not offshore although maybe sometime offshore but at the start i see them they have plan assembled in port yeah yeah so chris i mean from a marine warranty perspective what does that do to marine warranty when you have an offshore port i think yeah, it's a really interesting perspective i mean is it still shore side at that point in time or is it just part of the <laughs> offshore exactly. construction. Yeah. I think that's an interesting question, certainly for ourselves as marine warranty and also for underwriters and brokers to address how that falls under the different policies. I think you've got to treat it as you would treat any other project and, and look at the pros and cons and the risks for storage offshore. Obviously, there are difficulties. I mean, there are difficulties either way if you're looking at the potential for inclement weather, mm. if you're looking at any cyclonic activity. Obviously, if you're storing things offshore, that's something that's going to have to be taken into account. And for the wider kind of picture of offshore wind in the United States, I think that's an area that we need to look at carefully. You know, certainly when we look at Europe, we haven't had the cyclonic activity in Europe that we have the potential for here. And there's, there's certain aspects of that that need to be taken into account as part of the construction phase. So when you're storing, whether that be, you know, a storage yard offshore, or whether that be a storage yard quayside, you know, are you at risk if a storm comes through? What can you do to make sure your assets are secured if you're going to have inclement weather that's cyclonic that's going to affect the staging facilities? 
that's something that we need to look at very carefully. As a marine warranty survey, that's something that we'd be looking to make sure there's mitigations and plans against. You raise a good point there about cyclonic weather. I mean, obviously in the Gulf of Mexico, they're very used to cyclonic weather, hurricanes. But we are in an environment where the weather patterns are changing globally and not for the best. Are we thinking as an industry about what impacts that may have on the floating systems and also the turbines themselves and the marine vessels that service those turbines? I think so. You know, one of the things that I don't think is necessarily a challenge, but hurricanes change direction maybe faster than the storms of the North Sea. But I think the turbines can cope with it, but that's something to consider. And, you know, by the way, if you read its name in marine technology in April, I'm writing a history of metocean criteria in the gulf of mexico with my colleague ken shout i really enjoy writing that from <laughs> from 1937 when the first platforms were you know what was the thinking you know when people started designing with back in the late 40s 32 feet waves you know yeah and then he, some of them got blown over and then he went up to 50 and then some mm-hmm. 10 years go by not, nothing happening and then oh now it's 70 feet and then yeah. hurricane ivan comes in and suddenly it's <laughs> <laughs> so it's sure a fascinating anymore, story how and how you know the decision making without data so i always say that we, we think we're doing stuff new but the engineers of 1950 were asking the same questions and and breaking ground. another thing on, on the warranty that i find interesting too is here in the u.s we all gonna see feathering solutions like on vineyard yeah and we saw on block island you know and that's a lot of questions around downtime you know because of the jones act we only have one jack installation vessel under construction that is jones act so they would likely, you know, vineyard, we will use a foreign vessel, which then means you cannot, you have to transport the components with a barge or some other feeding solution. And then you need to start lifting things. Yeah. And, you know, when you exceed five feet of system, you know, can you do more than five feet? Yeah. And that, so, that so warranty survey will play heavily into that. Heavily yeah. into that, yeah. So how does that play out when, because of course we often think only about the installation phase of the project, but you have operations you know if a turbine goes down it's going to have to be moved off site you also have decommissioning as well so how does that all play into sort of the marine warranty and the vessel operational aspects yeah i think that's an interesting point dan i think you know certainly on the construction side as alberta said it's going to be critical for the kind of sea states for the barges going offshore whether there's going to be any downtime. But similarly, if you're looking at kind of maintenance and any other aspects, you're going to have the same constraints are going to be there for any portion of the operations, whether that's you know maintenance that you need to bring the turbine back to shore, whether that's through the decommissioning, you're going to be limited pretty much to the same criteria throughout the life cycle of the project. And so that is definitely something that we're going to have to look at and you know pay very careful attention to. Yeah, another important difference is the role of the OEM, the original equipment manufacturer, in this case, the turbine manufacturer. In the wind industry, they have a say that is not common in the oil. You know, they will say, you're not going to do this if it's more than a one, five feet of sea state. You know, they'll have people on board who will do the installation because they warrant the performance of the turbine sometimes, or oftentimes. So they will have the same, you might have the turbine guy and the marine warranty all looking on their weather forecast and yeah. saying, mm, not Maybe, sure. yeah, I'm not sure. So that's also different. You know, a lot of the, even when you think design-wise, we are in permanent consultation with the one turbine manufacturers because if they say, this doesn't work for my turbine, it doesn't go, you know. Even yeah. some of the bright ideas I see here in this conference, I think, no, I don't think. Right now, I don't see a turbine manufacturer doing this, you know. So, you know, going back to the very start of our conversation where we were sort of comparing the difference between 
oil and gas and offshore wind, and we're looking at the repeatability of the number of assets in an offshore wind farm, how does that sort of manifest itself in terms of claims? Because, of course, you know, I'm not sure, Chris, if you can answer this. You know, we have there's a lot of experience of large offshore wind farms in Europe. And so there is experience there that, you know, what can we expect in terms of claims? Because there's a huge amount of activity around these projects. Absolutely. I think I'm going to answer that in two parts, Dan. The first is going to be just to address the kind of the marine warranty role during installation of of a wind farm. And the reason I want to do that is because it's slightly different than it would be for other projects, other energy projects. And that is normally because there's so many repetitive operations, you look at a kind of first in series and then percentage thereof. So the marine warranty might be there for the first five turbines and then 10% thereof and not there for every single installation. The same for the interarray cables. Typically, you would be there for the transmission lines. But for any of the kind of highly repeatable operations, it would only be a small percentage of the operations that you'd actually look at. And then looking at the potential claims, then absolutely, when you have highly repeatable operations, you know, it can be easy as you get further down the project, after you've done 70 of them, to fall into a rhythm and not be looking at potentially some of the other complications that might be going on, some inclement weather coming in or some changes either to the ground, to the area that you're operating in or the specifics of the lift that you're doing that might change the risk. When we look at the claims that we've seen in Europe, typically about 80% of the construction claims are related to cables. Mm-hmm. That is probably going to continue to be the case as we move into kind of floating wind. Obviously, cables are a key portion of the risk. They take up a lot of real estate on the floor for an offshore wind development. There's a lot that can potentially go wrong. And they are the kind of the key aspect that is going to be very reliant on weather conditions, maintaining station for the vessels as they're being installed. And so I think that's going to be the biggest area of risk, going to maintain the biggest area of risk moving forwards into floating wind. Yeah, I mean, you know, looking here at Alberto, I mean, we, again, we focus a lot on WTIVs and SOVs and CTVs, but there's a much bigger fleet than that, isn't there? There's cable layers, there's trenches. You know, can you talk about the kind of requirements that we Mm -hmm. might see going forward and what impact that might have Mm -hmm. on the US fleet? I mean, before I jump into that, just thinking of little tidbit I got from underwriters that I found quite interesting. One of the few real life experiences of wind turbines and hurricanes, I understand, happened in Puerto Rico. And guess what? They found that the biggest problem was not the wind. It was water going into the control system. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, hurricanes, yeah. everybody, you know, you immediately think about wind, but it's the water that kills, you. it's the, you know, stuff getting wet. And, you know, and of course, those turbines rely on your end control systems to be able to adjust, right? So yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's on another of those. But your question was more on the bigger picture, right? Yeah, there is a bigger picture. And I keep thinking that this downtime question, if you have a day of downtime, it's not the downtime of the one vessel. It's the downtime of the entire spread, right? You know, you're going to have people on port. You're going to have a big, you know, jack-up with a crane. You have a feeder. You know, all of this is, you know, that's why I, you know, we believe that the integrated WTIV has this advantage that you have everything. You have this whole supply chain in one bolt, right? If you're forced to kind of break it down into different assets, if you want all the you know, the chain's as good as each link, right? Yeah, so you're essentially talking about an entire factory, an ecosystem yeah, on a single asset. Yeah, that you can control and it has a high, you know, threshold of allowable wave, you know, and you put in a jack-up and you can take a 50-year storm, you know. So it's and all it, about de-risking. De-risking that. that now, it, there's a capex that come with it, of course, because it costs serious money. But a capex is spread over 150 turbines times 20 years, right? So over 3,000 turbines. 
Now, when you try, you know, of course, it's a much lower capex if you have an existing barge and you use it. And I can see that owners want to use their assets. But, you know, a day of downtime is not just downtime of their asset. It's everything around it. that Which, of course, all of these operations and moves and things and like I'm that. And I'm biased, of course, because I designed <laughs> those big vessels. I have to say that. I'm not, I'm not trying to throw shade on anything. But. but all of this activity leads to the question about reliability again yeah. and its impact on the system. So we have to design for reliability as well, yeah, surely. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Exactly. I'm just going to yeah. jump in and, and tag back to something Alberta said earlier, which was, you know, when you're talking about installation of offshore wind you're talking about speed and obviously if you have an integrated wind turbine installation vessel you're reliant on that vessel obviously if you have downtime on that vessel you've got downtime on the system but for the most part they're very robust and with a lot of reliability but linking back to what we were saying about the feeder systems if you're on a feeder system you are much more exposed to one portion of that slowing down the project and when we look at the kind of traditional construction methodology in the u.s when we're talking about oil and gas or offshore energy you were talking about single assets with high values you know in a day of downtime here and there doesn't have a huge mm. impact on the project but when you're talking about you know downtime on barges or feeder supply solutions over 100 turbines or 150 turbines you know that starts to have a noticeable net effect on the project yeah. no no there are smarter feeder solutions there are you know, yeah. being proposed with motion compensation and other aspects so there is that part of the market too i mean we've seen the big wtivs we've seen the barge, the simple barge but there's a middle ground too where you have a cleverer feeder solution to really increase the reliability and there's some simpler now, self-elevating kind of storage platforms yeah there's that some are being put forward as a kind of, of yeah. yeah people trying to figure that feeder solution out now of course everything costs money right <laughs> so, so that's been the problem. You you make things clever, you improve the reliability, but the price tag goes up, and mm. somebody's got to pay for Someone's it. Got to, yeah, and, and that's you know, at some point the question is: we have so many of those projects. There's such a need for assets, and they have so few assets out there that Jones Act. And how do you bridge the gap between what you need and the actual? act of signing a big dollar contract to build those things, right? That I can see a I big mean, gap there now, and how are we going to reconcile? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it seems that there's a market there for a project developer that wants to actually invest in the high dollar assets, is to yeah. get them built now and charter them out for other projects and start to recoup some of that money. Yeah, I mean, the only jones like vessel under construction is Caribdis, and that's exactly what Dominion did. Yep. You know, they stepped in and they find, and they have their own enough of their own projects to use the vessel they charter into Orsted for their project and yeah I can see that or maybe we need an Elon Musk just be in and just jump in and say I'm going to do this <laughs> I think we just need a few more vessels I mean, yeah a few more know. vessels you know they'll be needed you know but. so Alberto you know what is the future for yeah. the marine vessels what are you guys thinking I mean, about just kind of bit I think what has been challenging in the last few months is the impact of supply chain problems out of COVID. I think that also have <laughs> put a, a damper on things that should happen. And now you have geopolitical, you know, this market uncertainty and, you know, it's difficult for people to part with big dollar sums when things are uncertain, right? So that is, I think, a, a short-term challenge, at least, mid, you know. Now, look, going forward, yes, we believe in, you know, we, we're working hard on a feeder solution. We're looking at you know, 20 megawatt turbines or bigger, you know, what we're going to need for this even bigger turbines, you know, and we even have that NG 25,000 jackup, which will be the large, you know, we, the 20,000 is already under construction, what is, is going to be one of the largest ever, but we're looking even bigger. I mean, is there a point where a jackup is 
just not big enough. Or, I was just going to say this. Know, I mean, is there a point where yeah, you start going to semi? So we're asking those questions, you know, that, you know, kind of flow, some kind of floater and, and we look into that, you know. But of course, as, you know, if you start looking... And floating, of course, floating wind. Yeah, I mean, if you start looking at floaters, if you look at semi-subs or something, then it starts to become a little bit more tricky in terms of Jones Act compliant vessel. You know, can we build something like that here in the US? Yeah, and, and you know, are you going to build a Sleipner offshore wind, you know? You're looking at, she's approaching the billion dollar now. and you know, <laughs> Big money. Yeah, you, you know, you still, you need those 3,000 turbines to spread the cost. But where are they? Are they committed? You know, imagine that you are on, you know, it's like all the drill ships they were built, right? There seemed to be a huge market for those billion dollar drill ships and they are. But you look at the amount of money that was spent on the leases. I mean, it, yeah, it's got to be think, there. Right. But remember, you know, I like the fact that at least in the offshore wind people are questioning costs and you know we, we learned the hard way of the drilling industry that there was an overbuild you know drill ships they were getting nearly a million per day so then you were you know you saw drill ships at 165,000 a day so that was you know these days you barely see a drill ship that's older than 10 years everything has been scrapped you know and but a lot of that is due to the sort of the pricing mechanisms between offshore wind generated power and you know the cost per barrel of oil yeah, and, you know, the cost per barrel of oil is highly influenced by geopolitics, right? Yeah. You know, that we are we are because OPEC and Russia flooded the market with cheap oil in 2014 to kill the competition, and it did a very good job in killing a lot of the competition. And now it's high again, but offshore wind will be a more local, you know, I guess even society-driven market with stable PPAs, right? That's the positive part of offshore wind is that you, you know how much you're going to gain. You know what the price is and you know yeah, how much fixed, your revenue is. Yeah. And you know fairly reasonably what the wind is. You know, you're not drilling a very expensive well that comes out dry. But you do have to lay an awful lot of them. Yeah, you need an awful <laughs> lot of them, definitely. And the margins to get it wrong, you know, they're, all of us have been offshore oil and gas projects that went badly wrong and they still make a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah, so if something goes wrong in an offshore wind project, you're facing problems. Yeah, you have to face, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't have those big margins to kind of dampen it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, what do we need to do? You know, both to, looking at both of you now, like, what do we need to do to make offshore floating wind a success moving forward? What are the key things that we have to deal with? Well, I think there's a lot of focus on supply chain, of course, you know, making it cheaper, I think. You know, people are starting to wonder too. You know, how we're going to do once they are deployed but and that was a, that was a strong message from yesterday's yeah. conversation as well. Yeah. And partly because you see a lot of kind of commercial marketing people, you know, presenting their great revolutionary ideas and, and how we're going to cut cost and now and there are the engineers sitting back and asking, hey, but when we deploy an FPSO, we think years ahead of how we're going to maintain it. Are you guys just thinking about reducing cost and uh, you know that kind of thing is. As we come closer to execution, the engineers will step in and they start thinking, hey, hang on a minute, let's think this through and how are you going to take care of the... And the companies like yourselves at Bureau Veritas in integrity management and how you're going to maintain this, right? But of course, the first step is to get it commercially viable, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I think just to add to that, yeah, as we start to see these projects develop, I think it's important that we learn from everything that we've done over the years. I mean, obviously, when we're looking at offshore energy as a more global, bigger picture... We've obviously installed thousands of floating assets and there are definitely lessons to be learned from, yeah. from the different types, from installing cables in those kind of conditions, from looking at the mooring systems, whether that's continuary moored semi-sub or whether that's a TLP or a spa. There's lots of lessons that we have learned over the years. Obviously, as Alberta said, we've made mistakes over the years 
we've seen those mistakes. I think it's important, certainly for wins, that we learn from those mistakes and incorporate those mitigations and lessons learned into the front end of the project so that we have a successful campaigns as we start to see commercialization of these assets. Yeah, that was something I saw this morning, that there was a strong emphasis on fast development of pilot projects from which you can learn because you don't want to be making the expensive mistakes on the big projects. Mm. So getting the pilots done, learning from the mistakes and then making sure those mistakes are learned and addressed into the, you know, once you go into full commercial development. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've learned from offshore wind in Europe as well. We've learned things with cable protection. We've learned things with the cables themselves. We've learned things from the operations and the maintenance. And I think those are all aspects that we need to tie together. Obviously, as you move into kind of deeper water, the costs increase for floating wind. So the mistakes, the cost of mistakes are also going to increase. So we need to tie all of those lessons back together so that we don't have more costly mistakes. Yeah. What impresses me is the sheer scale of the how much steel you're going to need. You know, you're talking about 5,000 tons of steel per hull. I mean, maybe people see drawings, but, you know, you, you can take an energy stadium and it's going to fit inside that floater there. <laughs> you know, that's how big those things are. And I think, I don't know if people kind of physically understand how big those things are, you know. And you're going to need hundreds of them and plus all the more, you know, how many mooring components, you know, are there enough suppliers for that, you know. Are there even enough shipyards to turn all this steel around at a global scale? You know. Well, I mean, we're just starting out. And the on turbines, of course. I mean. e- exactly, and we're just starting out on the sort of the life cycle approach. But there's also the decommissioning that we have to think about as well. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's not like decommissioning a single spar, which, although expensive, is just a single unit. Yeah. Here, you're potentially talking about thousands of units that need to be de- decommissioned, recycled, yeah. reused, or whatever. So th- there's a logistical mm. challenge around that as well in the future exactly yeah Yeah, absolutely i think the advantage that we've got for the floating wind is that a lot of these are going to be disconnectable for maintenance reasons so hopefully when we look at decommissioning aspects of those one would think they might be a little easier to decommission Mm -hmm. because they've been designed to be disconnectable in the first place so hopefully we can tow those in but obviously the full field aspects of you know cables and and all of the other infrastructure that's going to be surrounding that's going to be a big undertaking and the scrutiny that renewable energy projects get i find fascinating when the first you know, all you start coming out of Spindle Top, Texas. Nobody asks about the birds or, you know, just, <laughs> there's money coming out of my backyard. You know, that's what matters. And with renewable energy, you always have someone standing up. No, but if you're going to do this, you're going to, it's going to cost energy to build the steel and you're going to do that, that and the impact on the fish. And, you know, there's such scrutiny. You know, someone is genuine from the environment, someone from people who just don't like the idea of renewables because it eats into their business and, you know, but that scrutiny is always going to be there. You know, it's right? always going to be there, and it's something that we have to take a step forward, and yeah. it's going to be baby steps, and we're going to have to learn, and it's not going to be perfect. But hopefully, as an industry, we can drive it together forward, you know, in as pragmatic a way as we possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's been a great conversation. Chris? Alberto, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Dan, that was another fantastic conversation, and I still think you have a career in podcasting if you want it. So there you (laughs) go. But it has been really great over the last couple of days having these panels and very informative discussions. So thanks again for stepping in and hosting. Appreciate it very much. Whether we're meeting the challenges of decommissioning offshore oil and gas assets in a safe and sustainable manner, helping ship owners embrace decarbonisation and digitalisation to transport goods safely and sustainably, or supporting marine renewable energy technologies. Bureau Veritas Marine and Offshore 
is shaping a better maritime world. Thank you for listening to the Shaping a Better Maritime World podcast by Bureau Veritas.